You're listening to LawPod UK from the creators of the UK Human Rights Blog. It's a podcast that discusses developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. LawPod UK is produced by the barristers at One Crown Office Row and is presented by Rosalind English. You'll recall earlier this year we brought you Catherine Bernard, Professor of European Law at Trinity College, Cambridge. Catherine has agreed to LawPod UK republishing her series on the Brexit process. And in the second podcast, she talks to Bonnie Soames about transition. This is not a word that generally sets the heart racing, but in this context, it raises lots of interesting legal and political questions. But what does it actually mean? Transition is usually the status from going from one position, so membership of the EU, to another status, what our future relationship might be. But in fact, there's an interesting question of terminology because I'm using the word transition. The government uses the word implementation. And the reason why they talked about implementation is because they thought that we'd be going straight from the divorce deal, the Article 50 deal, straight into the new deal. And this would be a a phase of implementation, bridging one to the other. In fact, we haven't even started talking about what our future relationship with the EU might look like. And so in reality, this is not implementation, it's transition. And even transition suggests we're going somewhere. What we're actually going for is pretty much status quo, what we've got at the moment, minus access to the EU institutions. Where are we at with transition in February 2018? Where have we got to? So you'll remember there was a lot of fuss at the end of last year over whether sufficient progress, that was the key term, had been made in respect of negotiating the withdrawal agreement. And there was a panic period when the DUP said they weren't happy with the form of words. But eventually, on the 8th of December, the UK agreed with the Commission a so-called joint report saying where progress had been made on the big ticket items, citizens' rights, the budget and crucially Northern Ireland, albeit what was agreed on Northern Ireland was an agreement to kick the can down the road. That agreement was enough, it was not legally binding, political agreement, but that agreement was enough to enable the European Council to say a week or so later, yep, sufficient progress has been made. We can now move from phase one, which is talks about divorce, withdrawal, to phase two, which is transition and a look as to what the future relationship might be. But transition is the big question at the moment, and it's the thing that the UK government wants earnestly because we're just over a year away from Brexit Day and firms need to have security and certainty to know that their operations will continue beyond the 29th of March 2019. So the longer the talks over transition take, the less valuable transition becomes because it's not sending out the signal to business that things will be all right on the 29th of March 2019. So in February 2018, we're now in phase two of transition, but Barnier has just really put down a marker for the end date of transition, and that's coming up fairly soon. 
Absolutely. So what happened recently was that the EU gave Barnier his so-called negotiating mandate, which will enable him to negotiate the details of transition. And the EU's negotiating mandate is very clear, basically status quo minus access to the EU institutions. Now, Theresa May is coming out and saying this is not acceptable, particularly over citizens' rights. She wants to be able to introduce a new regime for the citizens from the EU who come to the UK after the 29th of March 2019. But the EU is saying, uh-uh, no, you can't have that because if you're going for status quo transition, that means the four freedoms, that means no cherry picking, that means we've got to respect free movement of person in its entirety. So there's already an area of potential confrontation and the longer it takes to resolve this, the less valuable transition becomes because it's eating into the time that's remaining. And businesses might well say, well, it looks like they can't even agree transition, let alone a future deal, we're off. Then let's have some dates on that transition because it's perilously near at the moment. That's right. So we leave on the 29th of March 2019. Assuming transition is agreed, transition will run, according to the EU, till the end of December 2020. That's only 21 months or so. The UK says we want two years or thereabouts, so the UK was hoping to take this till 2021. Why does this matter? Because transition should be a bridge to our new relationship. The problem is the new relationship and the negotiations over the new relationship aren't really going to get going until after we've left. We probably will know in October 2018 the outlines of what that future relationship might look like. But the nuts and bolts won't get negotiated until after the 1st of April 2019. Now, these trade agreements take a substantial period of time, probably two to three years to negotiate, and then they need to be ratified. They need to be ratified by all of the EU states, plus in some countries, national and regional parliaments as well. And any one of those could hold up the ratification of the future trade relationship. Now, it's certainly true that a future trade relationship could have provisional application. But can you see there's likely to be a temporal gap a gap between what the EU says, transition comes to an end at the end of 2020, and a future deal which may not be in place until 2023-2024. What's going to happen in those intervening three or four years? Can transition be rolled over? And this is a million-dollar question, and one that neither side is either asking and certainly not answering, because there's a legal problem here. And the legal problem is that Article 50 is essentially exhausted once we leave the EU. And so any new arrangement has to be done under separate legal provisions, usually Article 207 on free trade agreements, that was the legal basis for the Canadian free trade agreement, the Canadian CETA, or Article 217, which was the basis for the Ukraine agreement, with the process laid down in 218. I accept this doesn't sound particularly riveting listening, but it's crucial because that's how you do future trade agreements. If transition becomes much longer, the risk is that it shouldn't be left under Article 50, but it should be dealt with under these new provisions. So the really interesting question is, if it looks like transition needs to go beyond the end of 2020, is it possible to roll over the transition period? In other words, can there be a clause in the withdrawal agreement which says that if we need more time and transition needs to be stretched for a longer period, can that be authorised under the withdrawal agreement? 
should there be rollover provisions in the withdrawal agreement? If I deconstruct what you've just said, transition could be translated to us being in a no-man's land. And not just being in a no-man's land for the two years that people thought transition would last, but actually being in a no-man's land for seven years to the end of perhaps 2025, when we will be subject to EU laws and any new laws passed, we won't be able to have any influence over those laws. So it doesn't seem to be that we're gaining much. Well, it depends on your point of view. If you're a Brexiteur, you would say, absolutely, we're not gaining much at all. As Jacob Rees-Mogg has said so vociferously, it's a vassal state status. But on the other hand, if you're trying to run a business, you know that the UK government is far from being ready for new systems in place, for managing immigration, for managing customs, for managing rules of origin. And all of this takes time. So if you're a business, you're pragmatic and you say far better to at least have legal certainty over the rules that operate. And at least I know what the rules of the game are for my business for the next few years. And of course, from Ryanair's point of view or any of the big companies, if they're planning and their planning timeline is a year or more hence, they need to know that now. They can't wait till October 2018. So the transition might be quite good for business if it lasts longer. Absolutely. But from a point of view of taking back control, asserting sovereignty, actually, we're in a worse position even than than Norway because it's quite clear in the EU's document, they really rub our noses in it and say basically no access to EU institutions, no participation in EU institutions, except in very narrow circumstances where the UK's interest is directly affected. So the reality is we are will be a rule taker in that phase. But let's not overdo this point because we're coming to the end of the Commission's mandate. We're approaching the end of the European Parliament's mandate. So the likelihood of having a lot of new legislation coming through is rather slim. And of course, the EU takes time to pass legislation. It's one of the points that the Brexiteurs have long made. But it requires impact assessments and all sorts of other assessments. Legislation doesn't just pop up overnight. So the likelihood of there being lots of new legislation, I think, is, is quite slim. And David Davis has said, even though the EU has told us we will not be able to participate at all in the legislative process, David Davis wants to have some sort of veto power where the UK's interest is directly affected. And I imagine this is where there might be some give and take in the negotiations over transition. Now, if we just do a few of the headlines, we know in December the government in the Commons suffered a Dominic Grieve defeat that uh, MPs will have a meaningful vote on the final Brexit bill. But hitting the headlines this week is the plight of EU migrants during that transition period and the fact that there will be a cut-off point beyond which they won't be allowed to stay as they have done now. What do you think about that? So Theresa May has said EU citizens who arrive after the 29th of March 2019 know the name of the game. The UK is out of the EU at that point. Therefore, they shouldn't expect to be treated in the same way as EU citizens who came before the 29th of March 2019, because those citizens didn't know that there would be a change in the rules. So she thinks they should be treated differently. EU's point of view is actually, if you want to benefit from transition and the legal certainty for business, then you've got to have 
Respect for all four freedoms, including the free movement of persons. EU is absolutely clear, no cherry-picking. So that really might leave hospitals, other people who rely on migrant labour, unable to fill their staff posts. They, they might be worried because if you're an EU national who arrives, say, in April 2019, you know you're going to be treated differently to your fellow EU nationals who arrived a month or so before. But you also know that there's two years transition and you don't even really know what's going to happen beyond those two years. So there risks being some sort of limbo unless the UK gets its act together, gets its immigration paper out and then its immigration bill. And so at least a degree of certainty can be offered to those citizens. And we have an idea what the immigration regime will look like post-Brexit. Just to finish transition before we go on to the EU withdrawal bill, which is in the Lords this week, on transition, what's your worst fear? My worst fear is that actually no agreement is reached quickly. It gets bogged down in the detail. It gets bogged down in the politics of the Conservative Party. And eventually, the worst case scenario, I think, would be no agreement on transition. So there's no transition. Now, while I fully accept that transition is not pretty, I think it's practically necessary. And so I think here pragmatism's got to override principle. So you don't want us just to have dropping out of the EU as an option? I think that would be catastrophic. I think most people accept that we are so far from being ready for a hard Brexit in just over a year's time. Just think, if we were seriously going for a hard Brexit, the government should have been buying up tracts of land around the M20 and around Dover where to house customs clearance, house the lorries, house, get prepared for the massive traffic jams that will ensue. There's no sign of that. And as we know, government procurement takes a long time. We should have been doing that to, to at least two years ago. It hasn't happened. We are just not ready. We have got a minister. Well, that's, that's true. We've got a minister. We've got a number of ministers, but they're pretty busy fighting the good fight in the Commons and elsewhere. If we now move on to the EU withdrawal bill in the Lords, there's talk of more defeats for the government in the Lords before it goes back to the Commons. You can listen to the speeches of people like Lord Adonis, who's a Remainer, or UKIP leader Lord Pearson, who clearly is a, a Brexiteer. Does the Lords really have influence over the Brexit bill, or won't everything it passes just be reversed when it gets back to the Commons? Sure, there's a real risk of ping-pong, as it's known. So the Lords making amendments, they send them back to the Commons, the Commons rejects them. On the other hand, the Theresa May has a very small working majority in the Commons and she's got to pick her fights carefully. Rumour is that there are, the government is prepared to make some concessions in the Lords to try not to protract this process. I think that there's some key issues that the Lords will address. I think one of them is the controversial notion of Brexit Day. It's fixed in the legislation, albeit subject to the possibility of amendment by secondary legislation. The risk about Brexit Day and fixing it, prescribing it as the 29th of March 2019, is that it ties the government's hands in any negotiations, particularly if the negotiations go right up to the wire. If the negotiations do go right up to the wire, they go right up to the 27th, 28th of March, any agreement that's reached then has got to be ratified by the European Parliament. 
and there's also got to be a vote in our parliament, there will be no time if Brexit Day is fixed for us on the 29th of March 2019. That's one issue. Second issue is the extent of the delegation of powers to the executive to give effect to Brexit. These are the so-called Henry VIII clauses. What's the process for scrutinising the use of those clauses? Is the list of the areas where those clauses can be used to correct deficiencies? It looks like a closed list, but in fact it's pretty open, should that list be narrowed. Third area, devolution. Really incomprehensible mess, and a lot more work needs to be done on that. Fourth area is the Charter of Fundamental Rights. The Withdrawal Bill says clearly that the Charter of Fundamental Rights will not be incorporated into UK law. Now, obviously, that's a political decision because the UK has never been that keen on the Charter. But it goes against the fundamental principles of what the bill is trying to achieve, which is essentially a cut and paste of all of existing EU law into UK law. They've cut and paste everything, but not the Charter. And presumably that will have a knock-on impact on other legislation that's already been passed. Absolutely, because not least because various bits of legislation make express reference to the Charter. And the government's also committed itself, they say, that there will be no reduction in the rights and remedies available to its citizens. And yet, by taking out the Charter, by definition, there will be a reduction in rights. Now, the government says, well, even if the Charter has gone, we are preserving the so-called general principles of law. But the trouble is the Charter is clear, the general principles of law are not clear, and there are as many views as what constitutes a general principle of law as there are lawyers who will argue the question. And so the argument is that what you're replacing the Charter which gets quite a comprehensive list of rights, with general principles, which are much less clear. And crucially, there's no remedy if there's been a breach of a general principle. At the moment, the Charter comes with remedies, significant remedies, which are of benefit to the individual. Now, I asked you when we were talking about transition, your worst fear. Can I just conclude the podcast by saying, if we're talking about transition and the EU withdrawal bill, what's your most optimistic scenario? I think what will happen is you've got the withdrawal bill going through Parliament at the moment, sometimes known as Withdrawal Bill 1. There will be an agreement on transition and transition will need to be implemented into UK law through a separate bill. The government has committed itself to do that. And that bill is sometimes referred to as Withdrawal Bill 2 or the WAVE, which stands for the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill. Now, what's interesting is that the Withdrawal Bill 1 turns off key principles of EU law, notably supremacy of EU law and direct effect. Supremacy means EU law takes precedence over UK law. Direct effect is about the direct enforcement of EU law. Those are being turned off by the Withdrawal Bill 1. The WABE, the Withdrawal Bill 2, will have to turn them back on for the transition period because the transition period is status quo. So all of the principles of EU law will continue to apply until 2020. So the Withdrawal Bill 1 will turn the principles off. The WABE will turn them back on again until the expiry of the transition period when you default back to the position under the Withdrawal Bill 1. It's all pretty complicated. Pretty complicated. And to the public, which is, there's really important democratic principles here because they might believe those newspapers and the media that saying the government is trying to stop Brexit or the civil servants are trying to stop Brexit or certain 
Conservative MPs are mutineers. Do you think perhaps there is a need for clearer communication on the options facing the UK government in terms of Brexit, or perhaps even a need to go back to the voters and have a second referendum? I certainly agree with the first point that there needs to be um, much clearer communication because at the moment the communication is still pretty simple and it smacks of cakeism. Have your cake and eat it. It's possible to get a deepened special partnership which will not cost the United Kingdom. And the reality is it's all about trade-offs. And the most fundamental trade-off is do we stay close to the EU, probably through some variant of the European economic area like Norway's got, which means not so much of a financial economic hit, but less control over our borders, our sovereignty, which is what, of course, were key demands of the Brexiteurs. Or do we go down the Canada route and do something like the Canadian CETA, which means a significant financial hit, significant economic damage, but also much greater control over our borders and the creation of our laws. And the question is, where do you sit personally? Are you prepared to make sacrifices? And what are you prepared to compromise over? Are you prepared to compromise over the economy or over sovereignty? And that's the fundamental question. And the politicians aren't putting that dichotomy out there for the public to digest. Although there have been opinion polls done and it seems the public is swaying away from control over migration to thinking more about the economy and perhaps they do want a second referendum. Yeah, there's certainly a move and indeed there was the most recent poll that suggested that there was a 16% increase in those who wanted a second referendum. But it's not clear that the second referendum will deliver the result that Remainers hope that it will, i.e. a reversal of the Brexit decision. And certainly the polling suggests that it's still pretty much within the margin of error to see whether there is a real shift in public perception. The public remain bitterly divided on this point. Right. Well, the only other thing we haven't covered is the leaked Brexit analysis looking at the impact of Brexit on the UK economy and whatever scenario they use, there are three. It's said that the UK economy will be significantly worse off, although Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has dismissed this. As she said, the survey which MPs are now going to be able to look at, they weren't previously, doesn't include a scenario on a bespoke deal. Is this the kind of thing that you think gives the government and the process of Brexit a bad name, that there seems to be secret analysis that the public are not being allowed to know about? I think it it gives the process a bad name because we'd been promised various impact assessments from David Davis, which turned out to be made of straw. There are these much more concrete impact assessments, which are now being rubbished by the very ministers in the very departments that seem to have commissioned them. And the reality is they do spell out that there will be costs for Brexit, which is what the Remain camp had said throughout. It was also coincides with findings of other respected bodies in other countries who've also been doing modelling on what the cost of Brexit might be. The reality is the government is still refusing to face up to tell the truth to the public that there will be costs to Brexit. Now, those on the Leave side will say, well, we knew that anyway and we still voted to leave. But on the other hand, government should be about trying to improve the lot of the people. And a fair number of people will be losers in this process, certainly in the short term. So basically, there's all to play for still. 
a great deal to pay for and that's why you should listen to this podcast and the next one when we'll tell you more. Catherine will thank you for the second in your series of Catherine Barnard's podcast 2903CB and thank you very much for listening. LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English and produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and recommend us to a friend.